Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. A couple of quick reminders before we get to our destination this week. Submissions, of course, are well underway and have continued to roll in, but the appetite of our editors won't be so easily satisfied. We want more. More shadows, more nightmares, more weirdness and insanity. And if you enjoy listening to the show, I have a feeling you may be in exactly the right frame of mind to help us track them down. So, if you've got some dark and twisted fiction of your own, or you know someone who does, make sure you head over to talestoterrify.com slash submissions to find out how to send them our way. We're also entering the final week of reviews for good through Podchaser. We've had a great showing so far, and I can't express enough how appreciative we are of all the kind words we've received. If you haven't dropped a review of your own yet, you have until April 30th to share your opinion of the show or any other podcast you listen to and help support a great cause while you're at it. Visit podchaser.com and search for Tales to Terrify. Then, let us know how we're doing. Every time you post a review, Podchaser and a few of their other sponsors make a donation to Meals on Wheels America, helping to keep seniors healthy, well-fed, and connected through this tough time. It really doesn't get much easier 
to do a little good. Speaking of doing good, I'd like to extend a huge thank you to our newest patron, Steve Sick. Your generosity helps fuel the fires that keep this insidious machine running, churning out darkness for your ears week after week. Thank you so much, Steve. If you're not a supporter yet, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify for a look at all the perks from ad-free episodes to swag. Every dollar we receive goes right back into the podcast. So supporters, both on Patreon and PayPal, really are the lifeblood of our show. One last thing before we hit the road. We're still working on preparing our winner's episode from our latest flash fiction contest, but we have a new contest approaching on the horizon. Something a little different this time. I won't say too much right now, other than, for those of you whose creative talents lie more on the visual side than the written word, this may be right up your alley. Stay tuned for more details on that in the next couple of weeks. It's going to be a blast. This week, we stick pretty close to where we left off, in the city of Toronto, Ontario. And once again, we won't be lingering long on the surface. No, our tale this week takes us back underground, into the darkness that lurks deep beneath the city's streets. If you've been to Toronto, there's a good chance you're familiar with the city's downtown PATH system. 28 kilometers of climate-controlled underground walkways and shopping. But while this city beneath the city draws thousands of visitors and commuters from the surface every day, there's rumored to be another city that runs even deeper below the Toronto metro area. Deeper, darker, and potentially far less empty than we might hope. It felt like only a moment that Ernest had taken his eyes off the litter. But a moment was all it took for one of the kittens to wander away from his ground floor apartment. For such a tiny creature, it must have moved surprisingly fast, because standing on the sidewalk along Parliament Street, gazing first one way and then the next, he couldn't spot the little ball of fur anywhere. As he stood, helplessly debating which direction to head, he could make out the tiniest of little meows from the space between his apartment and the next. It was a tight corridor that led down toward a cave-like opening in the ground. It was an access tunnel, or a drainage ditch of some kind, he thought. But Ernest had never really paid it much attention, until now. The late August afternoon was warm and bright, but peering down into the yawning black mouth of the tunnel, a chill crawled up the nape of his neck. It was dark in there, very dark. And then the small sound came again. From inside the tunnel, he was sure of it. Ernest ran back to his apartment and fumbled frantically through junk drawers until at last, triumphantly, he fished the flashlight from beneath the clutter and sprinted back to the tunnel's opening. The earth sloped down unevenly toward the tunnel mouth, strewn with litter and rubble. He carefully picked his way between rugged chunks of concrete and rusted rebar that clogged the corridor. He was down below street level now, and it was surprisingly cold in the shadow of the buildings, which now seemed to loom over him on either side. It was quiet, too. The noise of city life, just a few feet away, didn't seem to penetrate the tight space. At the mouth of the tunnel, he paused and tilted his head to listen. He could hear the steady drip of water echoing from deep within, 
from where this passageway, no doubt, connected to the sewer system. And there it was, an animal noise. Not the squeaky meow he thought he had heard before, but something more robust. Labored breathing and a pained growl? Ernest's mind raced. Had the kitten fallen or gotten stuck inside? Was it injured? Or maybe it had been attacked by sewer rats. There were probably sewer rats in Toronto, weren't there? Big ones, too, he could only assume. He flipped the switch on the flashlight and smacked it against his palm until the light came on and stayed. Crouching low under a cracked slab of concrete, Ernest peered into the darkness. But the beam of the flashlight struggled to penetrate the thick shadows of the tunnel. Tucking the light between his cheek and shoulder, he shuffled through the low opening and into the tunnel. The sound of dripping water was louder now, and judging by the raw, pungent odor of the place, he was pretty sure his assumption that it connected to the sewers was an accurate one. But there was another scent, too. Something warmer. Something living. Animalistic. He stooped in the cramped corridor, head-brushing rusted pipes that ran the length of the ceiling. He fanned the flashlight back and forth. The pale circle of light skittered and danced off of trash and debris, casting long, distorted shadows on the crumbling concrete walls. Up ahead, the tunnel looked to branch off into a T, but with so much detritus on the ground, it was hard to say for sure. The corridor was already cramped, and the small circle of light cast by the flashlight only made things that much more claustrophobic. Ernest briefly considered turning back, but the barest hint of a mule drifted from just a few feet further down. He swallowed hard and began shuffling down the corridor, turning the weak beam of the light to check behind each rock or pile of junk. As he neared the intersection in the tunnel, the sudden scrape of a footstep from outside the light's beam froze him in his tracks. It had come from what sounded like only a few feet away, and in the pitch darkness he was hesitant to turn the light on it. Did he really want to know what was there? He swallowed again, pushing the fear building into his throat back down into his stomach. A rock shifting, probably. This tunnel didn't look all that stable, that was for sure. Maybe that was even more terrifying than something being in here with him, he reasoned. Being buried alive by a thousand pounds of concrete? Now that was a real possibility. He steeled his nerves and turned, training the flashlight on the right T of the tunnel's intersection. The light caught in two large reflective orbs, dancing orange and red light back at him in the darkness. Two narrowed eyes framed by short gray fur. For one terrifying moment, his brain struggled to even make sense of the thing. It stood maybe three feet tall, standing on its hind legs. Through its mottled gray fur, its shape was emaciated. Ribs were clearly visible, and its arms looked taut with lean, wiry muscle. Huge yellowed fangs protruded from its wide mouth, twisting its lips into a pained grimace as it squinted in the beam of the flashlight. But somehow, even worse than its fangs were its proportions. They were all wrong. 
animal, but not animal enough. Almost human. And then it spoke. Two words repeated in a rough, rasping hiss. Get out. Get out. And then, with a hiss, it threw up long, clawed fingers in front of its face before skittering out of the light and down the sloping, darkened branch of the tunnel. Ernest, likewise, didn't stick around. As soon as the creature moved, so did he, scrambling back the way he'd come, as close to a flat-out sprint as he could manage in the cramped space, dodging and sliding and tripping over debris as he went, not slowing until he had crawled free of the tunnel, clawed his way back up the slope, and found himself doubled over and wheezing, but safely back in the sunlight and noise and chaos of the busy city sidewalk. Back in the apartment, shaking and pale, he shared the whole terrifying experience with his wife. And once his nerves settled and he'd had a chance to collect his thoughts, the couple contacted both the city's sewer department and, eventually, the local newspaper. If there were creatures living deep within Toronto's underground, people should know about it. The sewer department sent a crew to check out the location under the premise that it could prove dangerous for adventurous children. And the details of his story must have piqued the interest of the paper, too, because it wasn't long before Sunday Sun staff writer Lori Goldstein showed up at the couple's door. After sharing all the details he could, Ernest took Lori back to the tunnel. But in the time in between the second visit and his first, the tunnel had caved in further, now almost entirely blocked by a huge slab of concrete. Right at the entrance to the tunnel, though, partially buried in rubble, they discovered the corpse of a full-grown cat. Not a good omen, to be sure, and one that couldn't help but raise goosebumps on Ernest's neck as he recalled the pained animal noises he'd heard coming from the tunnel the day he ventured inside. Wherever the creature he'd encountered deep within that tunnel came from, whether from the sewers or the rumored hidden city buried deep below Toronto, it's not a place Ernest ever visited again. And despite her best efforts, the reporter, Lori, wasn't ever able to find it again either. Personally, I think it's the sort of thing that may be better off left a mystery. Our first story for the evening comes from Warren Benedetto. Warren Benedetto writes short fiction about horrible people doing horrible things. His stories can be found in anthologies from Scare Street, Black Hair Press, and Erie River Publishing, as well as publications such as Dark Matter Magazine, 365 Tomorrows, and the Tales to Terrify podcast. He studied evolutionary biology at Cornell University and has a master's degree in film and TV writing from the University of Southern California. When he's not writing, he works as Director of Global Product Strategy at PlayStation, where he holds 20-plus patents for various types of gaming technology. He is also the developer of Stay Focused, the world's most popular anti-procrastination app for writers, which he built while procrastinating. For more information on Warren, visit warrenbenedetto.com and follow him on Twitter at Warren Benedetto. Children of the Night, join me for Warren Benedetto's Those Who Turn From God, first published in Schlock Webzine, November 2020.
This is it, Daniels said. He slowed the rusted pickup truck to a stop near a small clearing in the woods. The headlights cut through the tall pine trees, casting shadows like prison bars along the forest floor. You sure you want to do this? Luke asked as Daniel climbed from the truck. Daniel reached behind the driver's seat and pulled out a heavy-duty bolt cutter. You have any better ideas? He slammed the door and went around to the back of the truck. Shit, Luke whispered under his breath. He grabbed his flashlight from the seat and exited the passenger side, closing the door behind him. No, he said, as he walked towards the back to meet Daniel. I just... I don't know. Maybe we should just call the cops. Explain what happened. That ain't gonna bring him back, Daniel said. Luke shined his flashlight on the dead body in the back of the pickup. It was tightly wrapped in a dirty white sheet, stained with a bloom of deep red blood. Where are we taking him? The well. Daniel pointed into the woods. Luke panned the light until it found a six-foot-wide circle of flagstones piled waist-high and capped with a heavy wooden lid. Two flat metal bars crisscrossed over the top. Ancient padlocks clamped the ends of the bars to rusted metal rings driven deep into the mortar between the stones. A knotted tree and thick horizontal branches loomed over the well, like a guardian. Daniel slapped the side of the truck to get Luke's attention. Come on! We don't have all night. He slid his arms under the body's shoulders. Help me lift. Luke hesitated for a moment, then tucked his flashlight under his arm and grabbed the body by the legs. Together, he and Daniel carried the corpse over to the well and lowered it to the ground. Luke looked around nervously. You sure no one will find him? Out here. Daniel spun in a circle gesturing at the dense forest. Nobody even knows where this is. You did. Daniel clamped the bolt cutter around one of the padlocks. That's because my arsehole brother took me here when we were kids once, to scare me. The lock dropped to the ground. And he only found it by accident. What do you mean, scare you? Scare you how? Daniel cut the second lock, then circled to the other side of the well. Supposedly there was a bunch of witches that lived out here, back in the 1800s. Slaves, or former slaves. I forget. Weird shit was happening in town, dead crops, livestock missing, shit like that. So of course, the first thing they thought was, it's gotta be witches, right? Of course, Luke said. Daniel strained to cut the third lock. Finally, it snapped. Folks in Cedarville apparently tracked him out here and lynched six of them. Up there, he nodded to the branches of the tree extending overhead, then moved to the fourth and final padlock. Then they chopped him into pieces and threw him down the well. The last lock hit the ground. Jesus! Yeah, bad time to be a witch. Or a slave. That's Cedarville though, Luke added grimly. Bunch of racist fucks. Even today. Daniel removed the flat metal bars from the well and tossed them aside. Anyway, point is, nobody's coming out here. Grasped the edge of the cover and prepared to lift. Ready? Luke walked over to the well and grabbed the other side of the lid. Something caught his eye. Whoa, hold up. He shined his flashlight on the cover, then brushed away a layer of dirt and rust flakes to reveal words carefully carved into the wood. He read them aloud. Thus is the fate of those who turn from God. Luke looked up at Daniel. You sure he made this story up? I don't know. Who cares? Maybe he heard it at camp or something. I'm just saying. Why would someone carve that there? He pointed to the words on the cover. And why the bars? And the padlocks? To keep people out? Or to keep something in? Jesus Christ. Are you serious? Daniel took off his Cedarville High baseball cap and scratched his fingers through his hair.
I don't even know what to say right now. He put the hat back on his head. He made it up. And even if he didn't, it was like 200 years ago. What do you think's going to happen? Luke looked down and towed one of the rusted padlocks that was on the ground near his foot. I just think we should go. Daniel sighed, irritated. (sighs) Fine. I'll do it myself. If you're too chicken shit. He curled his fingers under the cover. As he did, a dull thud reverberated from deep within the well. It was a hollow sound that seemed to double over itself as it bounced off the well's circular stone walls. The cover began to vibrate, its edges rattling against the flagstones. Daniel jerked his hands away as if burned. Yo, what the fuck? What was that? Luke asked, alarmed. He stepped back away from the well. Before Daniel could answer, the heavy wooden cover began to rise, levitating slowly, as if on a cushion of air. Eerie orange light spilled from underneath, distorted by shimmering waves of heat. Suddenly, a massive shockwave exploded from the well, launching the cover violently into the air. It turned end over end like a coin flip, crashing down through the trees somewhere in the distance. The shockwave knocked Luke off his feet. He fell backwards, cracking his head on the rocky ground. For a second, he blacked out. When he came to, he sat up, clutching the back of his head. He groaned in pain. Ah, what happened? He slurred. He squinted and looked around, confused. Daniel was still standing by the well. His mouth hung open in mute horror, his skin reflecting the glow of the firelight. His wide-open pupils were black marbles. Embers danced in his polished glass stare. Luke followed the direction of Daniel's terrified gaze. He blinked his eyes as his concussion-dulled brain strained to process what he was seeing. A shadow was rising from the well. Then another. And another. Six in all. The shadows flew up and circled around Daniel. He stood frozen, unmoving, paralysed with fear. They dipped and swirled, intertwining like wisps of smoke as they wrapped around his body. Long, black tendrils encircled his wrists and ankles. Currents of superheated air venting up from the well caused his clothes to ripple. Sweat poured down his face. His lips quivered as he whispered the same phrase over and over, like a penitent reciting the rosary. It sounded like, I'm sorry. At the same time, the two metal bars that had been crisscrossed over the well began to rise. They started spinning, slowly at first, then faster and faster, until they were just a blur. Luke thought back to his summer mowing lawns with his uncle. That's what the spinning bars reminded him of. Lawnmower blades. The sickening realisation of what was about to happen hit Luke at the same time that it happened. The whirling blades launched through the air towards Daniel. Luke turned away, shielding his face from the horror. A torrent of gore sprayed at him, slapping long tendrils of blood across his arms and back. Hot, wet chunks of flesh pelted his body. Through his clenched eyelids, he could see the orange light flare brighter. The heat from the well surged against his skin. The way a campfire pushes heat in your face when you squeeze a splash of lighter fluid into the flames. After a moment, Luke lowered his hands and cautiously opened his eyes, afraid of what he might see. But there was nothing. Daniel was gone. The only thing that remained was a dark red stain in the dirt, with long smears stretching along the ground from the stain to the well, and up over the sides. As if something, or pieces of something, had been dragged inside. Luke's eyes rapidly scanned the area around the well, searching for the murderous shadows, sure they would be coming for him next. They were. The shadows disentwined and separated as they lowered themselves to the ground near Luke. There were six of them, each distinct in form and size, 
their silhouettes visible against the fiery glow still spilling from the hole in the earth. As they drifted closer, one of them leaned down towards him. Luke's nostrils burned with the acrid smell of wood smoke and brimstone. He heard a whisper. A woman's voice. A single word. Cedarville. Luke pointed a trembling finger. Then the shadows flew past him and into the woods, headed in the direction of the town. That was Warren Benedetto's Those Who Turn From God, as read by James Barnett. James Barnett, a.k.a. Jimmy Horrors, is the creator, host, producer of the Night's End podcast. When he's not banging his head against the monitor while audio editing, he scribbles horror stories. Check him out at jamesbarnettauthor.com or the Night's End podcast at nightsendpodcast.com. His podcast, The Night's End Podcast, is a short story podcast with a focus on dark speculative fiction. It hopes to leave you wishing for the night's end before each story is through. If you enjoy Tales to Terrify, Children of the Night, I highly suggest giving Night's End a listen, too. I've added it to my feed a few months back, and it's been a great, dark addition to my regular listens. Thanks for reading for us, James. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Our second story tonight comes from Jerry Lean. Jerry Lean lives in northern Virginia and originally hails from Seattle. In addition to being an avid reader and an at times sporadic writer, he's passionate about horse racing, tea, whiskey, and art. She has work appearing in Nature, Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show, Daily Science Fiction, Grievous Angel, Grimdark, and others. She's edited several anthologies for independent presses, is finishing an urban fantasy novel, and is a member of the Science Fiction Writers Association and the Horror Writers Association. Listen with me, children of the night to Jerry Lean's 
I Give You My Heart, first published in Enchanted Conversation, February 2016. My lovely little Galena, how she shines at court. Her dress is so perfect. Magic, making them never wrinkle, even if she sits too long beside my throne on her smaller but still commendable chair. Her gowns never stain, either, no matter how much wine she might spill during an intimate dinner. She does seem determined to let the finer points of etiquette elude her. Oh, why do I lie? The finer points aren't even in question. I'm lucky if she chooses to use a fork. When I rescued her from the evil witch, I thought I was getting the princess who'd been stolen. Lovely as a child when she was taken, and surely just as graceful now, twenty years later. She was five when the witch stole her, from a court where the concept of eating with some measure of dignity was apparently taught at age six. Galena is a barbarian. There, I've said it, or thought it at any rate. I wouldn't dare say it. I'm convinced she's bewitched everything in our bedchambers, setting them to spy on me. She holds on to me as tightly as the witch held on to her. To say she's jealous is to underestimate the obsessive nature of her love. A thousand questions await me after even a brief time away from the palace. It's how she was raised. I shouldn't complain. My kingdom thrives. She's cured every sickness presented to her, and our people prosper and love her. The kingdom's livestock give birth to fine young, and her crops grow straight and luscious. She's beautiful and uninhibited in bed, and she kisses me sweetly, even if she can't seem to use a spoon without dribbling. Genevieve, on the other hand, has lovely table manners, Voluptuous creature that she is, she always jokes that she was made to be a concubine. And I'd agree if she were actually better in bed than my savage queen. In truth, I often wish Genevieve were a little more adventurous, that she could provide some lovely middle ground of wildness in bed and decorum at the table. And on the dance floor. Genevieve's dancing is lovely and not the almost seizure movements Galena does. Primal, Galena told me her movements were, when I offered to enlist a dancing master to teach her the modern steps. The true dance, she said, and I was sure by the gleam in her eyes that she meant magic. Do her steps draw out a spell? An enchantment surrounding my court? Binding all in it to me or to us or just to her? She killed the witch, after all. The people think I did it to free her, but she did it to be free, and that's quite a different thing, isn't it? I would have been killing an evil witch who had the audacity and cruelty to kidnap a king's beloved child. But Galena killed the woman she thought of as her mother. Galena killed someone she loved, all to move on to me, or perhaps more accurately, to a better life. Would her life be better without me here? Is it wrong to admit that each time I spill my seed in her, I worry she'll conceive and that it will be a boy, an heir? Her role would be secured, queen regent. I would fear for the ultimate fate of my child if I were not much more frightened for myself. It's why I should send Genevieve away from court. She's too great a risk to take. Until I fully understand the limits of my wife's power... I must be careful not to anger her. Galena already watches my mistress with a knowing look. Best to remove the temptation. At least until the mages figure out how to contain my bride. I have all of the court wizards working on it, the best in the land. Only last night I saw them dancing in Galena's wake. 
eyes slack, mouths open in exhaustion. Maxwell, the strongest among them, was barely able to pull away, and he fell into a chair near the door, fanning himself as if she'd nearly danced him to death. Given his age, she might well have been trying. I hear her steps outside the door, the tap tapping of her heels. She never wore shoes when she was the witch's daughter and apprentice. So one would think she'd trip and fall occasionally as she becomes accustomed to the complicated court styles of dress. But she never does. I think she's bewitched her shoes the same way she has everything else. Really, that would be a small magic, wouldn't it, compared to the crops and the animals and how even when I'm lying in her arms and feeling terror, she can make me rise, my manhood a snake, and she the charmer. Why, then, can she not bewitch the silverware? I have never seen her wear silver, come to think of it. She uses it with no seeming pain, but perhaps there's something in it that resists her magic. I shall have to tell Maxwell if he still lives after his exertions from last night. To be honest, I haven't had the heart to check on him. The door opens. For a moment I catch my breath as always. She's the loveliest thing I've ever seen. But that thought slips away when I see the stark look in her eyes, the way she no longer smiles to please me, the way her laughter sends a shiver through me. Have you no idea what day it is? She's dancing, and for once the steps look like something others might perform on the dance floor and not some kind of fit. It's Valentine's Day, my love. I know this, of course. Only men who don't fear their wives can afford to miss the important days. Birthdays, anniversaries, and, of course, this cursed feast of love. I thought I loved her when I met her. When she smiled at me from the well outside the witch's house and my horse, usually so fractious, settled under her gaze. I felt a fire go through me, and she was all I desired. Just another spell, I know now. I was her way out. She saw it long before I did, and perhaps the witch did too. The old woman looked almost relieved as she burned, the fire starting inside her and then exploding in flames that scorched her, but did not spread to anything else in her little house. Galena never told me how she did it. Perhaps it's best not to know. I reached into my desk drawer and bring out a lovely silk bag. Will you be my valentine, my lady? I try to make my smile sweet and silly, as if this is just a game, one of love and lust and things natural. She opens the bag and pours out the necklace I had made for her by the best goldsmith in the land. Her eyes meet mine, and she smiles. How beautiful! Where did you get this? Johannes the Younger. So fine for me? She holds it to her nose and sniffs it as if it's a flower. Her laughter cuts through our chambers. I think I smell Maxwell on this. A little magic, perhaps. How can she do that? Maxwell assured me she'd never know the necklace was enchanted. She puts it down, patting it gently, saying that she'll wear it some other day, that it doesn't go with the gown she has on. But that's a lie. It has no stones, is nothing but cunningly worked gold. It will go with any color fabric, by design. She pours herself a glass of wine from my goblet. The chalice is silver. I wait for her to take too strong a drink, to choke on it, or let some wine dribble out, but she sips it like a lady born to the palace. Have you never noticed that I only make mistakes when it's just us? Are you so bored with me that you don't see that I can make you proud at court dinners, that I do it when we're alone to get a reaction, any reaction? I frown as I consider this. I sit across from her when we dine in our chambers. I sit next to her at court dinners. Truth to tell, I probably haven't paid attention to how she does at those occasions, especially with that night's guest of honor at my other side, monopolizing my attention. I'm not sure what to say, so I say nothing. I brought you a present, too, she claps, and a man I don't recognize brings in a box. He sets it heavily on my desk and then bows to her and, grudgingly, I think, to me before walking out. I force myself not to ask who he is. It would show weakness, and that I won't do. What is it? I ask instead, touching the box. 
A heart? Isn't that the point of this holiday? To give someone your heart? She smiles, and it's the one I first saw her wear when I felt my own heart jump and dance at the idea that this beautiful creature might be mine. Open it. It's a box from my favorite baker's. Perhaps inside is a heart of chocolate or a rose-shaped wine cake. I push the top off and freeze. A heart, a human heart, lies on a cake plate, and it's still beating. For a moment I think it's hers, that she's made a mistake, and I'll crush the thing and have my life back. Yours? I ask, and I realize she hears the hope in my voice when she scowls. No! She leans in, running her finger over the heart, and it beats faster at her touch. She's a pretty thing, your Genevieve. I quite like her. I enchanted her and asked how close you two were, and she told me her heart belonged to you. What better valentine could a man get than the heart of a woman who loves him, of the woman he loves back? She leans down and kisses my neck, her lips close to my ear as she murmurs, I'll keep the rest of her. I may even share her with you on occasion. She's still alive if under my spell. Or you can destroy the heart and set her free. I'm looking forward to seeing which option you choose. She touches the necklace again. This is truly a work of beauty. Have Maxwell take the spell off it and give it to me again, tonight. She looks at me with a ferocity that's unnerving but also shocks me because I see something lost in her eyes. Emotion I don't expect. Does she love me? Is this how she loves? I can feel my manhood responding even as I'm repelled. I force myself to focus on the heart of my poor Genevieve. You've killed her. Either way, you've killed her. No, I can put it back inside her if I want to. The question is, can you make me want to? She looks at the necklace, and again there's an expression I can't read on her face. It really is beautiful. Fix it so I can wear it. And if I don't have him remove the spell, will you force me to? Will you work more of your damned magic on me? I won't take your choice away. I never have. That day at the well, you wanted me. I didn't make that happen. Only what came later with her... For a moment, there's something that might be grief in her eyes. Your mother. Yes, the only one I could remember until you reminded me I'd had another. My mother, who I killed for you. She strokes my hair off my cheek, where it has a habit of falling. Always for you. Her voice is wistful. I'll see you later, my king. And then she leans down and kisses me sweetly on the lips, entwining her fingers gently in my hair, doing things with her tongue I've never quite been able to teach Genevieve. I feel my heart leaping the way it did when I first saw her. As she passes Genevieve's heart, it too speeds up. My dearest love, I whisper as Galena closes the door. I'm slightly horrified to realize I'm not sure who I'm saying it to. That was Jerry Lean's I Give You My Heart, as read by Dan Grzynski. Dan is a broadcast and audio engineer by trade and has worked on many projects for local public stations. Lately, he's been recording literary works for LibriVox, as well as Tales to Terrify, and has just finished narrating his eighth audiobook. Thank you, Dan. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. If you're not a supporter already, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks 
from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and merch packs. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put a smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales. You can share your love of the show out in the world, too, with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will shoot you over to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy, custom, and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we dig deep into darkness with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.